Yeah. Well, I don't want to turn this into the Tim Ferriss show. Um, <laughs> Please. We could use the downloads. Welcome, everybody, to In Conversation with Shopify Plus. I'm your host, Jason Buckland, and we thank you for being back for the season finale of our show, where we speak with the very best and brightest in business. This, of course, is part two. If you missed part one with Chris Saka, the billionaire venture capitalist most famous from his time on Shark Tank, please go back in your feed and start there. But we wrap now with Chris, who really delivered the goods in part one and, of course, does not fail to bring it again here for the final parts of our chat. A reminder at the top that our talk with Chris features some adult language, so keep that in mind for when and how you listen. But please stick around with us for the next little while because Chris finishes here with his thoughts on some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley that he has encountered closely over his years. He shares some fun behind-the-scenes stuff about Shark Tank, including what illicit beverage might just fill the glasses in front of the sharks toward the end of long filming days. And we asked Chris if he ever thinks about the investment deals that got away from him. Here's what he had to say about that. And it's funny because on our business, I'm wrong a lot. As funds go, we've been kind of one of the least wrong, but we're still wrong like a third of the time. It's just when we're right, we're really fucking right. We were speaking, Chris, about the types of entrepreneurs you like to back. And in a similar vein, you have worked closely with and been outspoken about some names that are about as influential as you can get in Silicon Valley, not even including your time at Google, but you came to grow close with Evan Williams, who is the co-founder of Twitter, Kevin Systrom, who is the co-founder of Instagram, and Travis Kalanick, who is the co-founder of Uber. Now, while these people are tremendous visionaries and product people, and that is plain for all to see, but they were also CEOs, some for quite long tenures and some for more successful tenures than others. In your observations of this class of entrepreneur that is obviously intellectually very advanced, what are the unique challenges they face to also becoming good leaders of people and companies? Well, it's funny. I, I'm not sure that everyone you mentioned was a good leader of people and companies. We have this movement afoot now where we're starting to finally kind of reflect on are the most successful companies led by the best leaders and what's the trade-off for leadership and that positive impact on life versus outright success of the company. At what point do those costs start outweighing those benefits? And I don't think anyone has any real like clear answers yet, but it's great that we're wrestling with those questions, I think. For the longest time, it was investing was a maximization exercise instead of an optimization exercise. So what can we do to grow sales at any cost? And what can we do to get this company to go public so we can all make a lot of money with our stock and get rich as a result? And there wasn't a lot of focus on the downstream impacts of those companies. And, you know, I mean, an example, Twitter. I mean, Twitter started with just the best intentions. <laughs> like, like it's, it's really amazing to reflect on what it is now because Twitter was started by a bunch of guys who were basically hippies who really thought that, you know, I mean, guys like Ev and Biz who had these messages, like we we're amplifying, Twitter was amplifying the world's smallest voices. And, you know, and so it was happening around the time of the Arab Spring. And it was a really... At the time, it's incredible, but it was a really mission-driven, positive company that felt confidently, and I think justifiably, like they were a force for good, that they were eliminating more gatekeepers and letting 
activists and opposition leaders and artists and students speak with a voice that, you know, I mean, if you look at Evan Williams history, it was with blogger, it was let's make publishing available to anyone who wants to do it. They no longer need a newspaper or a magazine or, you know, I mean, or the, obviously the Gutenberg printing press or anything like that. Let's make it available to anyone who wants to be a publisher and no longer have an editor choosing what gets heard and what doesn't. And Twitter was an acceleration of that. And so the intention was incredible. And I, you know, I was a, obviously a very early investor in that company and bought a lot more stock along the way and helped recruit a lot of the employees. And there were people who I deeply believed in and to see what that company evolved to after, you know, Ev, Ev, who I think is one of the most thoughtful people in technology was pushed out of the company. Um, and, and as I saw the new leadership team become obsessed with, um, prepping the company to go public and then the public results, they kind of stopped reflecting on the philosophical questions of what is, what does speech mean? It's easy to say we're the, you know, we're the free speech wing of the free speech party, but what the hell does that mean in real life? And what kind of responsibility do you have society when your platform has been weaponized? You know, we see it not only in government and, and in, you know, political disinformation and misinformation, but look what's happening with the vaccines right now. And so we entered this era where there wasn't really that reflective philosophical leadership in the company and where there were cases to be made for that company not being a net positive during those times. I'll give Jack some credit. I think he was late to really wrestling with those issues. I think he's a design guy and not a big wrestling with deep thoughts guy, honestly. And so I think it took him a while to catch up to that kind of stuff. And he's still on his way. I think there's still, I think we'd all agree too many Nazis on the platform and too many abuse scenarios and too much misinformation, but I think he does actually care. And so, you know, I, I, I think we, for a long time, lionized the successful. And right now we're going through this cultural reckoning of at what cost are these people successful? And what does it mean to make your money that way? And I think we're having this overall reckoning. One of the things I'm thrilled to see is how many people that's driving to work on climate right now is those questions of looking, reflecting at their job and being like, fuck, what am I doing? Like, I want to go be part of a solution. And so, you know, I don't begrudge anyone who started out with good intentions, but these platforms evolved so quickly. All of us, and I, I was very, very proud of Twitter to be a Twitter investor in the early days. And then it started to get weaponized and I was like, shit, we need to do something. You know, I haven't been involved with the company since at least six or seven years, but you know, the wheels came off and it was sad to see that. And it was sad to see that happen across platforms. And so I think the key is really being conscious of yourself as a leader. Are you aligned both as max, you know, not, not just maximizing the business, but optimizing the business, but also taking into account the net effect of that company. And in the meantime, if you're somebody working for somebody else, asking yourself, are you proud to work there? Are you proud to explain to your kids and to your parents and to your friends that that's what you do for a living? And do you ever step back and think not just about the little cog you're working on, but the overall thing you're helping drive? And is it time to do something else? So yeah, I'm here to report the, be the greatest news is that so many of the most talented people I know from my experience working with those companies are now working full-time on climate. and. They're incredible operators. They know how to scale. They know how to build stuff. They know how to recruit and retain. They know how to market and tell stories and go to market. And you know, the best thing is it's all for good now. And that, that really excites me. I have a short series of questions related to investing. I hope to ask you, Chris, and here's the thread. In the wider Shopify universe, we have an audience here that is so broad 
many of them from retail brands of all shapes and sizes, that they either one day hope their business can attract investment capital, they're part of a brand going through the process of raising money right now, maybe they've already done it privately, or even in some cases they've IPO'd and gone public. Let me start here. What are the signs a company might start to notice telling them that seeking venture capital is the right move for them? The first thing I want to say is venture capital is not the only option. And I think that happens. I think people get myopic or they get blindsided by it sometimes because it's the only thing that really gets written about. Nobody really writes a letter celebrating a bank loan. And yet sometimes a bank loan is the right move. You know, one of the things that's been great about our climate investments is that when you're building an app or a social network, you know, you spend millions and millions of dollars to do it. And then you launch two years in and you might find out on day one, nobody gives a shit. And so, you you know, it's just at the whimsy of a market. With a lot of the technology we're building in our space, we know it works and we know there's customers and it's a matter of scaling. And so what's funny is that as much as our climate tech companies have big facilities and their industrial scale, they're able to finance those with what we call non-dilutive financing, meaning they don't have to give up part of the company. They can literally borrow money from banks. And so I want to encourage your audience to consider always like the full range of financing options. And venture capital is a great one, but it's certainly not the only one. And I think that gets lost sometimes, you know, in the and the rise of AngelList and all these other things where everybody's an investor these days. You know, and I think banks obviously do a bad job of marketing themselves and credit unions, et cetera. And they're, you know, they're always, their, their requirements are all very stringent, but we've seen alternatives come up that are interesting and worth considering and might make you just feel better about the decision you make in the end. That said, what you're looking at as an entrepreneur is you're starting first with yourself. And remember, nobody else knows your scorecard. Nobody else knows your priorities and what matters to you more than you. You spend your whole life when you're young with people who are doing what they think is best for you. And it usually is, you know, like generally speaking, your parents have your best interests at heart and help you establish some of those priorities and your teachers and your coaches and your drama instructors and your, you know, debate team and whatever you're doing, like those people care for you and really are trying to help you learn to make those good decisions. And they do have your best interest at heart. And maybe some professors in college, if you're the kind of person who really gets into college. Um, but then there's this point where you graduate and those people aren't there anymore. You know, I, I see a lot of people look for that in their boss at their first job. And that's where that disconnect starts to happen. Where it's like, that boss may be a really nice boss, but they don't actually know what matters to you specifically. And that's not how they're making decisions. They're making decisions based on the business and what matters to them and maybe what they think matters to you, but they don't know. You're the only person who knows what matters to you. I get asked for CEO level coaching advice all the time from our portfolio and just from friends. And I'm like, I can kind of give you my advice, but it's going to be my lens. It's going to, it's going to reflect my priorities, what matters to me, the importance I put on my family, on my relationships, on my personal health, you know, on, on fitness. It's, it's just going to reflect all these other things on adventure and adrenaline and all these things I care about. And so, but which might not be yours. And so the first thing I would say is as a business leader, you really have to take a moment to ask yourself, what is my aspiration for this thing? You know, in the world of venture capital, there's this term lifestyle business that's used dismissively to describe companies that don't have huge growth and kind of turn over and make a profit, but they don't, you know, they're not on, a, on the rocket ship. 
And it's funny, you'll see VCs all the time be like, ah, I just think that's a lifestyle business. Lifestyle businesses are fucking great. Like if you can establish a great lifestyle business where you're like, you work reasonable hours, you're a healthy individual, there's not a lot of drama, you have a solid customer base, money's coming in and it's allowing you to kind of have this incredibly balanced life where, you know, you're able to take care of your family and go on vacation and pursue a hobby and not be pulling your hair out all the time. That's fucking amazing. Like that is literally the dream. And so, you know, a VC hates that kind of thing. Cause when a VC, a venture capitalist puts money into a company, they're not looking to just get some of that money trickling back. It's not a bond. They're putting money into a company, hoping they get 10 or a hundred times their money back. And so when you go to take money from a venture capitalist, what you're saying is I have an aspiration to make this business fucking huge. And so that's not always the right thing to do. If it is the right thing to do, if that is your goal and you see the potential for that business to grow like a weed, then, then you go pull the trigger and you start talking to VCs, but that's not the right decision for everyone. And I feel like there's so much momentum dragging people there when really, you know, and that was one of the funny things about being on Shark Tank was that some of those businesses were venture scale businesses and deserve to be huge and have, I mean, I'll end up making a ton of money as a result of the investments I made in that show. I made minimum wage for the entertainment industry to appear on the show, but some of those companies were just absolutely incredible. And so, but the reality is a lot of those companies, you get on there and you're like, you guys, you've got it already. Like you're doing a direct to consumer thing. You're managing your own store. You've got a fulfillment partner, like it's working. <laughs> like instead of, instead of giving Mr. Wonderful, you know, a third of your business, like just keep doing what you're doing. It's great. Test a couple of ad strategies, maybe roll out a second product, but it's working. And so I think that's the first thing is that, is that the founders really have to stop and gut check about what actually matters to them, what their priority is, what makes them happy. So that's most important. A quick follow-up is that we hear on Shark Tank all the time that at minimum, you have to know your company's numbers and finances in a pitch meeting or you'll lose your audience. Aside from that, what are the absolute no-nos to do in front of an investor? Well, this is where I kind of go back to that earlier discussion of when, you know, you're thinking about how to hire and who to hire. So much of pitching comes down to empathy. It comes down to understanding the other person and what matters to them. What motivates them? What are they worried about? What's a win for them? What problem are they trying to solve on their end? And I mean, this isn't just like pitching for investment. This is pitching anything. This is just sales, right? This is just you know, whether it's in an interview for a job in either direction, you're just trying to figure out like what actually motivates that person, what matters to them, what makes them act, you know, are they acting out of sheer self-interest? Do they have a boss who's all over them? Are they stretched thin? And so they're really looking to keep margins tight. You know, is, are they right at the end of their budget? Are they looking to do a big glamorous deal and get credit for it? Who knows, but every single person has different motivations. And so I think the first step is, trying to figure out what actually matters to that person. What is their goal? What do they care about when they're making that decision? You know, I think it's funny sometimes when I can tell I got a mass email pitch where they just kind of blasted it out to a bunch of investors. I'm like, you kind of missed the opportunity there because, you know, if you did a little bit of research, you'd figure out what we're focused on and what we care about. And that may be very different than what Bill Gurley's into. And, and I think he's one of the greatest investors of all time, but we have a different lens, a complementary lens on the world. And you know, that might be different from what Katie Stanton is focused on. And so I think when you're talking to investors, just like when you're talking to anyone in a sales situation, really understand what motivates them. 
So coming into Shark Tank, I think sometimes people wouldn't really do the research and figure out what motivates each shark. What are they looking for? And what's different about them? Some really did. Some had watched every single episode ever and knew the sharks better than I did. But, you know, like I, Mark Cuban and I were very comfortable with high initial valuations for high growth businesses because we know the size of potential outcomes. And our holding period for these companies is a lot longer. I know that, like I said, when I do a deal, that's 10 to 15 years. And so if we invest in something at a 25 or $50 million initial valuation, we get into it. If it has the right growth curve, I'm comfortable it'll be worth a billion dollars someday. And so I'll do that deal. In fact, we have a company called Brightwheel that we invested in on that show. I can't remember the exact price, but it was maybe it was like 15 or $20 million, something like that. That's worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars now. I forget if they've ever said their price out loud, so I should, probably shouldn't say it, but it's, it's almost a unicorn. But the other sharks get scared by that because that's just not the world they operate in. On the other hand, you know, Lori will factor receivables. That is not something I do in my business. So Lori will literally finance your inventory and she's much more comfortable with supply chain management and landing stuff at retail stores, you know, like getting end cap placement and stuff like that. And so knowing your audience and what they're interested in, the kind of opportunities that appeal to them is just number one. You know, I, I think one of the worst things I ever see is when people deliver the same pitch deck to everybody without thinking about their audience. It's like, it's just like if you're applying for jobs, one resume does not fit all. Like you have to rewrite your resume to fit the job description. One, because in a lot of cases, it's actually a piece of software that's reading your resume the first time to see if the keywords all match. But two is that person is trying to solve a problem. And if your job, you know, if your skills description doesn't meet the job description, you're going to get overlooked. And so it's the same thing with venture capital and seeking investment. A little bit more investment up front in terms of time spent researching and understanding who that person is will yield much, much better results. You know, this is the same. Um, people come to me all the time to help them raise their first venture fund. And so Crystal and I are the most prolific backers of first time general partners in the world. Um, and most of them are women and people of color. So instead of kind of hiring, you know, junior partners, we try and stake people to start their own funds and go out. Um, and by the way, I mean, while that's cool and everything, we're going to make a ton of money doing it. It's not a charitable act like these, young investors, actually they're not all young, but you know, these investors who are underrepresented in the, in the industry are outperforming. They've been shut out before, but by giving them a shot, they're outperforming everybody else in terms of returns. So we love it. But when we go to introduce them to other limited partners, their instinct is like, okay, well, here's an email you can forward. And I'm like, bullshit. Like I'm going to introduce you to these 10 limited partners and you're going to write me 10 specific emails that are each tailored to each of them. So I want you to come back in a few days, having looked at their LinkedIn's, their interests, go to their social profiles, figure out where they hang out, what sports you might have in common, where you might have been before, an article about them that jumped out at you. And then I want you to write me a personalized email for each of them that says like, hey, we have this in common, or we met this person, or I love this, or I was inspired by this thing you said. I was like, when you do that, and I can put that in front of somebody, they feel seen, understood, researched, validated. And as a result, the likelihood of them investing in you goes dramatically higher. They feel special and unique, like you really did focus on them. 
and that matters. And the conversion rate goes way, way higher. And so ultimately, you know, I, I, I see people all the time post like this is the formula for a pitch deck. You know, it should have these slides, like the team, the market side, like that's bullshit. Like it needs to tell a story and that story needs to be tailored to the person it's talking to. Now, storytelling is an underrated skill and I really want to make sure your audience thinks about it. I, again, going to the kind of like slide decks or even pitch letters or whatever it is, like step back from it and see how you would tell that story to somebody else, how you tell that story to a friend, what arc would it have? You know, I see people lead with a team slide and I'm like, your, your team is weak. Like by traditional resumes, they're not strong. So don't fucking lead with a team slide. Like, tell me what you're fucking doing, right? And then later, tell me why that team is the team to get it done. But ultimately, you know, I, I do this with our team all the time. I'm just like, look, let's, as we, as, we, as we build out, and we don't really build decks, but we help our companies build decks all the time. I'm like, take a step back from it and just tell me the story. Just how would you riff? How would you tell that story? You know, a lot of people uh, heard me on season one, episode one of the Startup Podcast with Alex Bloomberg, where he was falling all over himself. One of the great storytellers of all time, but falling all over himself, trying to describe what his business was gonna be. It went on to become Gimlet Media. He sold it for a ton of money to Spotify. It was life-changing for him. But it was funny if you listen to that first episode because he could not get the words out of his mouth. And, and, and it was because he'd gotten all this coaching on what was supposed to be in a startup pitch. I was just like, wait, just pause, breathe, step back. What the fuck are you building, man? And, like, and then once you say those couple of sentences, why are you building it? And why is it going to succeed? And why now? And if you make it conversational, those slides start to fall in place or that letter you're writing starts to fall in place or that email that you're writing starts to fall in place. But it just got to start right up front. I mean, look, my, my least favorite emails to get are the, dear Mr. Saka, I know you're very busy. I mean, the minute you say, I know you're very busy, you just wasted one sentence of my attention. Like get to what you're, get to what you're doing. Like, and you don't have to be super cute about it. Or I get these people who are like, Hey, Chris, would you mind if I sent you my pitch? Well, fuck, you just missed your opportunity. That was your chance to send me your pitch. Like, don't ask for permission to send it right up front. Tell me, what are you doing? Like, why is it relevant? And, you know, sometimes, I mean, even when I write to stuff, like, like our notes to potential investors in our funds were bullet pointed. So even when I write stuff, I try and make it as clear as possible and as actionable as possible for the people that, that I'm working with. I want them to see the gist and make it as easy as possible. Cause ultimately our investors, the people who back us are busy fucking people. And so I think so much opportunity is wasted by not investing extra time upfront in those communications and making sure that those communications matter. I mean, another pet peeve introductions, you know, when, first of all, double opt-in, meaning if somebody wants an introduction to somebody else, ask the other person first, otherwise you're just setting everyone up for uncomfortability. Once you've got permission from both sides, put some time into it. It only takes a couple extra minutes to just be like, hey, like Jane, meet Bob. Bob is an old friend. We met doing this. I've done a lot of collaboration. I think he's great at this. Boom. Bob, Jane is the best. Here's how she's helped us before. This is why I recommend you. Next sense, I'm, you know, I'm putting you two in touch together because I think you could collaborate on X, Y, and Z. I'll leave it to the two of you to be in touch directly, but let me know how I can help or let me know what results. That sets everybody up for success. The conversion rate on those is nearing 100%, right? Both people feel awesome, like, oh, shit, I was just portrayed in this really positive light in front of somebody else. So I'm coming in. I don't have to humble brag. Chris just did it for me. I feel really good. The purpose of this email is there. It takes a little extra time. And I, 
you know, when I look at my inbox, a, a lot of what I do are introductions like that, but they, instead of just blasting people out, I mean, how many times have you ever gotten an email that's like, like, Bob, meet Jane, I'll leave it to you guys. And you're like, fuck you. Like you just fucked my, you know, like now, like, what is this about? Who is this person? You know, now, is, now I'm going to feel rude as fuck not replying because I'm busy with other shit or whatever. And so, so like just invest upfront in those communications and making them richer, more valuable. The conversion rate will pay off immediately. Another note that comes with a personal tie to you, Chris, is that if there was one switch you've credited for your professional success is this idea of playing offense or playing defense. When you were living in San Francisco, you've said that you found yourself too often playing defense, going through the motions a little bit, taking meetings, having coffee, going to cocktail parties and dinners without really accomplishing what you hoped to. Now, you moved out of Silicon Valley into the mountains near Lake Tahoe in California, and suddenly you find yourself better able to pick and choose where your time goes, who you interact with, who you invite to stay with you. And you have likened this to, now I'm being proactive about getting done what I need to, and now I'm playing offense. If I'm an entrepreneur, what are the self-evaluations I need to be making to determine if I'm playing offense or defense? Living in San Francisco, at the heart of it all, it, it, there were amazing times. I mean, all these incredibly bright, driven people without a lot of pretense, all in one place, constant stimulation, constant intellectual challenge, constant inspiration. But at the same time, as I was taking all these pitches, I'd get home at the end of the day and I'd realize I had no voice left. I was physically exhausted without even having exercise, just by virtue of having my brain running all day long. And I hadn't actually gotten anything done. I'd been helpful to a bunch of other people, like, because even if, even in a no, like if somebody pitches me and I say no, I'm going to still give them some feedback or some ideas or, or try and be helpful if I can. Right. And that's something we do at lower carbon. And when we get these thank you notes, our head of science, Clea is a complete badass. And we get these thank you notes. Like, I know you guys are turning us down, but thank you. Like Clea just taught us so much about our own science. We really appreciate that. You know? And so we try to be helpful even in our no's, but at the end of the day, I hadn't accomplished anything that I cared about. And it goes back to what we talked about, about you're the only one who knows your own priorities. And so I just realized I was just constantly kind of like playing defense and I was living out of my inbox. And I've been credited for saying this, but it definitely wasn't me originally. And so I don't know who to credit it to. I mean, I think Jason Shellen might've said it. I think Merlin Mann might've said it. I don't know, but it's basically a version of saying your inbox is a to-do list to which anyone else can add an action item. And I've repeated it and which is why I get cited, but I definitely did not originate that quote, but I live by it. It's like you get up in the morning and you look at that inbox and it is a bunch of other people asking you to do something. And there's chemically a dopamine response you get by replying to all that shit, right? Like you, even the ones that don't really move the needle for you at all. You're just like, there's this little chemical sense of accomplishment. Like, okay, I handled it. Okay. I handled it. But at the end of the day, I, I mean, I, I, I quite literally get hundreds of emails a day. And I'm not saying that's anything to be proud of. I just, my email address has been public for a long time. So I just get bombarded, but I can reply to all that stuff. I can put out fires. I can be helpful. I can give people nuggets of advice and feedback, but I haven't really done anything that helps me, that moves me. You know, I, I've had to actively move to a paper notebook to start, you know, writing out at the beginning of the day, like, what am I trying to accomplish today? But I just realized like, if I didn't do something radical, I was going to lose years of my life. And so we moved, we literally moved to the mountains and it was perfect. It was the perfect excuse to be like, oh man, 
I'm so sorry. I'd love to meet with you, but I'm like three and a half hours away, dude. Um, and so sorry, I'm not going to, and by the way, some people would still make the drive and I'm like, okay, fuck, I'll sit down with you for coffee, I guess. But the reality was it allowed, it put me in control of which, you know, big time sinks I wanted to opt into. And so it put me in control of where all that energy went. And so, you know, you can call it, I, I, I don't have an MBA and so it sounds cheesy, but to say like, you know, being on offense or defense or whatever it is, but I was picking my shots as a result. I was deciding like, okay, like this is someone I want to know better. This is someone who they, their ideas are stimulating. I think they're onto something big. I think we could be helpful. Let's invite them up to stay with us for a while and let's have a lot of fun and work on the product and see if we can get, if, if we can have a bigger breakthrough than would happen over coffee at the brick house on Brandon. And so, you know, similarly, like instead of just kind of hearing your quick pitch and teasing it out, like let's have the team from, you know, an Uber or Twitter or whoever to come hang out and let's whiteboard and let's really dig in on this and see if we can build something cool. And, and so that's what, that's the way I kind of describe it. I mean, now living in Wyoming, no one just happens to be driving through. And it's fantastic. So, I mean, obviously some people come to vacation or see the national parks and we'll catch up in the backyard. But for the most part, this is a completely, you know, this is a life that we completely opt into. It allows us to focus and get stuff done and, and live out our priorities that nobody else could tell us what those priorities are. Taking a quick break from our chat with Chris Saka to bring you another short recap of the second season of our podcast, if you have been with us through each episode, we thank you for that. But in case you had missed even one show, you are going to want to go back. On this season, we have had Ariel K, the founder and CEO of Parachute, on discounting strategy and the future of work she sees for companies like hers. We spoke also with Pyle Kadakia, the founder of ClassPass, on what happens to a company when 95% of its revenue vanishes into thin air, as it did for ClassPass last year. And also we had on Heather Hassan and Trina Spear. They are the co-founders and co-CEOs of Figs, recently a public company. And they share the power and potential that goes behind going after a niche market and really knocking it out of the park. In other industries, you're kind of acquiring a new customer and then that's it, right? Or maybe they come back every few years. Our customers are coming back every month, sometimes even sooner than that. In 2020, over 60% of our net revenue was from repeat transactions. I mean, that is really unique as it relates to other apparel or other retail companies or industries. That was Trina Spear, just one of the guests on our packed second season. Before we get back to Chris Saka, this show is brought to you by Shopify Plus, the enterprise platform that powers the very best brands in the market, from Allbirds and Gymshark to Staples and Heinz. And I have a special announcement for you here today. What do the biggest brands have to say about influencing the next generation, selling globally and growing boldly? Commerce Plus is your chance to find out. Coming to your screen on October 13th, this online event from Shopify brings thought leaders and icons together for unfiltered talks on the future of commerce. Tune in live to hear from brands including Big Face, Bombas, Mented Cosmetics, and more, and get ready to gain insight into upcoming Shopify products and go beyond what's possible. Register now, or if you're listening to this after October 13th, watch on demand at Commerce Plus. That's Commerce P-L-U-S dot Shopify dot com. Now, without further ado, let's get back to Chris Saka. 
Chris, let me bring us back to something we touched on earlier, but of course you are likely most famous, certainly so outside of the world of tech investing for Shark Tank. And you were a guest shark for many seasons, and I think a reluctant one too, in some ways, in that you originally had reservations that you'd ever want to appear on the show. You later, I think it's fair to say, came around on the power of Shark Tank, and obviously the reach and fame that came with being on the show has been very real. You wrote once that you were known before you became a shark, but you could walk around mostly unnoticed, whereas now about every time you're out, there's at least one selfie request. I wanted to ask you how being on Shark Tank affected your life as an investor. What has being on the show and attaining celebrity changed about how people behave around and approach you in an investment setting? There's this interesting phenomenon that happens when you play yourself on TV. So Edward Norton's a close friend of mine. We've been friends for a long time. And when we walk together through you know, like New York City, obviously he's infinitely more famous than I am. But what happens is two different types of reactions. So people will see Edward and they'll say, oh my God, Mr. Norton. And they put their hands out in front of them, like almost creating space. And they're like, oh my God, Mr. Norton, I loved you in. And then they cite like, I loved you as the Hulk or in Primal Fear or whatever you're doing. And so, you know, like, could I get an autograph or could I get a picture? And so it's this amazing recognition of a distinction between them. When people recognize me, they come right up in my personal space, throw an arm around me like, bro, what's good? Holy shit, man, how was, and then they go in and they're so convinced they know me that it convinces me I know them. And often I have to look at my wife and be like, do I, is, and she's like, no, stranger danger. Like that is not a person you actually know. But on TV and in podcasts and on Twitter, I've just been myself. And so it really tricks them into thinking that's me and, and that we're bros. And I don't blame them, it's their brain thinks that. I mean, there was no historical physiological precedent for having that much contact with somebody that's not standing next to you. And so that's one of the things that's weird is that people jump to an immediately intimate interaction with me, even if we've never hung before at all. It, it kind of cracks me up, but it's also a little scary. You know, I, I have had people show up at our houses or a place I'm staying and not even nervous, just like, what up bro, man, can we barbecue or something? And I'm like, this is a wild violation of boundaries, man. <laughs> like, but they're not even nefarious about it. It just didn't occur to them. Like they, they're really convinced that we're, we're friends. And so I would say that's one wild thing about being on that show is, you know, I'm me. I mean, I, the only person on that show actually playing a character is Mr. Wonderful. Kevin O'Leary is actually a fucking sweetheart. You know, he wants you to think he's Mr. Burns, but in real life, when they stop taping, he takes his, uh, you know, he takes off his mortician's outfit and puts on ripped jeans and his flannel sweater. And, you know, his Canadian politics suck, but he's Canadian through and through. And you know, that's a guy who like plays guitar on the end of his boat dock. And so he's a sweetheart, but everyone else is being themselves. And so I think that's one, one interesting challenge. The thing that I love about that show and the reason I agreed to do it after, at the time I didn't have a television, I never really had seen it and I hadn't paid much attention to it at all. I was friends with Cuban and I knew Damon. And so that was kind of part of how I ended up there. But as I started, as they brought up the conversation about me doing it maybe, and I put my ear to the track and started listening, I started mentioning, I started noticing mentions of it, but particularly around families, around kids, around my friends who had like teens and preteens and who would watch the show and talk about ideas and learn math even. And as I started interviewing friends about it, I'm like, is this, is this like a, is this a thing? And they're like, oh yeah, we watch it as a family every Friday night or there were years when it was on Sunday night. That was wild. It hadn't occurred to me. And it turned out, I think it was like 
I don't want to make this up, but it was like ABC's number one show that families watch with kids or something like that. And so as I learned more about how it was inspiring, you know, a, a generation of young entrepreneurs, I love that. You know, I mean, at a time when I think America's reputation has been challenged and when, you know, social and economic mobility aren't what they used to be, it is the embodiment of that American dream. And it's not unique to America, but it's kind of one of the things that we're good at is, this, is we are a very pro-entrepreneur economy. Yes, it would be better if we had more of a social safety net, et cetera. And so I'm, I'm definitely not an American exceptionalist. But in this category, America is a great place to start your business and give it a go. You know, I, I invest in a lot of other countries and they're not all bad, but America is the best place to start your company. And so it was this embodiment of this path of, of hope and optimism. And it was funny when I used to tease Cuban and Damon for being on the show, my message, like my replies, my mentions on Twitter would just go ape with people were like, fuck you, man, you're stepping on the American flag. And I was just like, what is happening? And they're like, dude, you are just interfering with the, with, with this dream. You know, you're stepping on the dream right now. So doing that show was amazing because I think ultimately everyone loves it. It's just a positive show. And I think people understand that it's an authentic show. Like, I, I don't know if you know this, but they don't tell us what to say. We invest all our own money. So there's no script. There's no predetermined number of deals that have to happen. We don't know anything about those companies before they come in the door. And so it's real at a time when most television is dog shit and made up and scripted and, you know, forced, it's very real. I mean, the only thing they do is they take those pitches from usually like 45 minutes to an hour and they cut them down to eight minutes. And so, and I've been begging them for years and like put full pitches up on your website so people can just see how thorough they really are. Like nobody invests after eight minutes. Like we ask all these really boring questions about, you know, your supply chain and your accounts receivable and stuff like that. So they edit it. And, and then the other thing, I don't know if you ever noticed, but we all wear the same damn outfits. And so if you see me in that shirt, like I'll wear that shirt for the season. And that's so that they can cut the episodes up. And, you know, if maybe one day there's a bunch of deals done and the next day there's no deals done, they'll chop those up to kind of spread them around. And maybe there's one episode where, you know, they try and put the best pitch of the day at the end of the episode so you'll stick around. So the one where somebody starts crying or something crazy happens, you know, so they want us wearing the same clothes. But otherwise, it's really authentic. We have these little earpieces in and they will mention stuff to us sometimes. So they'll be like, hey, uh, nobody's asked him yet how he came up with the idea. And so you're like, oh, OK. Hey, uh, how'd you come up with the idea? And the guy will be like, well, when my leg was blown off in Iraq and you're like, holy shit, of course they told us to ask that question. Or, you know, Cuban and I went out on a deal once, rent like a champion. It was Airbnb for college football towns. And we were like, wait, Airbnb for college football towns is Airbnb. And so we both went out early and the producers were like, hey, nobody asked what their sales were. And so we're like, hey, uh, do you guys by any chance have any sales? And they were like, yeah, we've done $1.6 million this year. And we were both immediately like, we're back in, we're back in. Um, and so it was like, but it's a very, very real show. And so I think people pick up on that authenticity. They see the positivity of it and they see how real we are. And so as a result, one of the things I've loved is that as much as it's not always amazing to have people recognize you and there are lots of times in your life when you just want to be more anonymous, it is pretty wonderful to have their interactions with you be so damn positive. And so, I mean, I don't, I don't think I've ever had a negative public reaction from that show once in my life. And for the first few years, every time somebody asked for a selfie with me, I took a selfie with them. 
and it got to be thousands of selfies and it was starting to overwhelm my phone. But I thought it'd be a cool project. Like, hey, I'll, you take a selfie with me, I'll take a selfie with you on my phone. Um, so I haven't done that anymore, but it's, um, you know, it was only it was only ever good vibes. The one thing I would say that got weird was when Netflix bought Shark Tank because up to that point, I was only recognizable in the United States. And then suddenly over in Europe, people started knowing me and they would shout me out on a Ferris wheel and in uh, in Denmark or, you know, in a plaza in Spain. And um, Netflix, like, you just can't understand or underestimate the reach of, of Netflix. So that changed stuff, but it's been good. I've been able to use it for positive stuff. And so I appreciate that a lot. I mean, that said, I've, since then, I've definitely turned down a lot of opportunities to have my own show, et cetera. I just don't know if the trade-off is there. And we live in an age of outrage and anger and I feel lucky to be on such a positive platform and I'm not sure that being in the limelight is all it's cracked up to be. Chris, let me ask a few questions a bit more personal to you before we go. We touched on your time at Google in the early 2000s where your title at one point was head of special initiatives, which sounds about as cryptic as I understand it actually was in that your job was in some moments to fly around the world and spend billions of dollars kind of surreptitiously on behalf of Google without your competitors knowing. What are some of your fondest working at Google memories that you like to look back on? By the way, that, that job title I invented, and it was because I was already a director level. The next level from there was VP and I was not VP material, so I'd never make it there. But what I really needed was people to call me back. So I, I said to my boss, I'm going to give myself this head of title so that when I call somebody, they will think I'm the decision maker and they will call me back. And it worked. And at last I heard from somebody at Google like a year ago, there's now like 300 heads of at that company. And I love it because it was just a made up title. I mean, Google, it's funny. I, so I worked there from 03 to 07. It was a really positive place. It had this positive reputation in the world. It was a, it was a place doing good and we cared, you know, and I, and I know now that in some respects it has this reputation. So back then when I went places, it was fantastic. I would go to another country and I was met with just positivity. They loved Google. People would tell me the personal stories that what disease it helped them figure out they had, or how it helped them find a long lost relative. And so I loved working there, but I mean, it would take me to, I remember working with councilmen in Tillamook, Oregon on a trough that sorted cow manure into the liquid and the solid using a commercial grade orange juice pulp separator. And the liquid was then put into a bladder and burned. The methane was burned to generate a megawatt of power. And the solid was sold back to, and sprayed on farmer's fields. And that was amazing because that isn't in the job description normally for somebody doing that kind of, you know, doing that kind of role. I mean, I would get to go give speeches in the wildest places. I would speak in Oxford wearing tails and I'd speak in Morocco. I would have to solve problems that we never got to talk about, but you know, like we'd have issues with governments and I would have to go in and quietly and try and unfuck our situation with a foreign government. And, you know, I mean, I went to school to be a diplomat and I ultimately, I thought I'd be an ambassador at some point in my career, but I got to use those skills there a lot. But I think my favorite was when I would get a call from Larry Sergey on a Saturday and be like, come meet me at this random garage in Fremont right now, because I just met this guy who's working on some batshit project and I want to acquire him. And I would race out there and meet some fucking engineer who would make my head explode and we'd acquire him and get to work together on crazy shit. I mean, you know, Sergey would come to me and be like, Hey, help us buy a blimp. Like, why do you want a blimp? Well, because there's going to be a helium shortage and I want to own some helium. <laughs> like, help us buy this hanger to put the blimp in. Like, 
<laughs> like help us. I want to install a chairlift that goes all the way across San Francisco to alleviate traffic. Those guys are fucking crazy. You know, when, when around those guys, I always made sure I had luggage and a passport because at the drop of a hat, we might end up on the other side of the world fixing something or pitching an idea. And so that was the great formative experience in my life. Your successes in investing have been well-documented, but you have also been a good sport and been able to laugh about some of the deals that got away. Dropbox, Airbnb, Snapchat, GoPro. These were all names that you had your chance to sink your teeth into before they grew really big. Is there one of those that you think about more than any other? I can go back through every company. So the one, even the ones I said yes to that fail and tell you with great conviction what the thesis was when we invested and why it was supposed to work. You know, I wouldn't do a deal if I didn't believe it was going to be huge and change the world. And it's funny because on our business, I'm, I'm wrong a lot. Uh, I think we've, as, as funds go, we've been kind of one of the least wrong, but we're still wrong like a third of the time. And it's just when we're right, we're really fucking right. And so I don't know if I dwell on any of those in particular. I don't think he'll mind me quoting this, but I had dinner with Bill Gurley, who I consider a friend and a mentor. And... It was last year, there were a lot of exits, a lot of money was getting made. It seemed like everyone was spacking and going public and getting liquidity and crypto was way up. And I just asked him, do you have FOMO when you see all these people making all this money and all these deals happening? And I, and I, you know, he's been at this a long time and I really, I look for his long-term perspectives and he's a, he's an investor I would love to have in every single deal I ever do. But I asked him, I'm like, do you get FOMO when you see all these deals happening and these, these exits and these people getting rich? And he said, no, actually. And he's like, I talked to my team about this. He said, I get FOMO when I go back and look and we never heard about that deal in the first place. I get, I get worried when we never had the chance to say no. He's like, we say no to the wrong shit all the time. And we say yes to some of the wrong shit. But he's like, if I didn't get a chance to say, to, to decide on it either way, then that's when I feel FOMO. And I laughed, I turned to Crystal and we, we both laughed because that was literally the question, that was the discussion we had with our team earlier, which is we're gonna get a lot of these wrong, but if we're not seeing them, if we aren't the place that everyone wants to bring their climate company, then we lose. Like the only way we win is if we're seeing all the great companies and then choosing the very best among those. And so when I look at the, you know, what some people call the anti-portfolio, the ones I've passed on, I don't think I have deep regret about any of those. I mean, I've gone on to, get to know some of the Airbnb guys well, and I really admire them. I think Drew at Dropbox is a good dude. I, I, I've spent a lot of time with Nick at, at GoPro. He's a really nice guy. And so, you know, I think some good friendships have actually resulted from some of those no's, but you know, I'm really lucky. I have more money than I'm gonna be able to spend. And, you know, if you give it all to your kids, they're gonna be a disaster. So my wife and I signed the giving pledge and committed to give away half of it during our lifetimes. So we'll probably give away half of it before the next three years are up. I guess I look at the opportunity like, ah, oh, we could have made a lot of money there. And that's the game, the competitiveness part of it. But at the same time, I just don't dwell on that stuff. I have two more for you here, Chris. Uh, a Shark Tank question, if I could. What is a favorite behind the scenes story involving one of the fellow sharks you like to tell? So we would tape 10 to 11 pitches a day. And that's a lot, right? I mean, it would be two episodes. And episodes, four pitches, so... You know, not all of them are great television. Um, it might just be boring. It might just not hit. It might be goofy. And But the last two pitches of the day, the stagehands, those glasses of water you see in front of the sharks, those are actually filled with vodka. Um, 
And so the last two pitches of the day can get a little fiery and they don't often make the final taping because there's a lot of yelling. What started as good nature ribbing can really get into vodka fueled yelling at each other. I, I can think of a couple examples that I'm not going to share publicly, but it, it is just really funny. It is a legitimately competitive show. When you see Cuban and I busting each other's chops, it's because that's the nature of our friendship with each other. But I also think like he's a brilliant guy and he reads a lot and asks right, a lot of right questions. But I also think for years he was never challenged on that show and he would just say some dumb shit. And so I felt like my responsibility on the show was to call him out. And so those fights were authentic. Like that, you know, that I would just be like, let the camera keep rolling. And I was like, post the whole fight someday. See what people think. So that's one thing is that I would say the, uh, the shark water, they call it, is poured for those last couple of pitches of the day. I was, I was so caffeinated. I would, you know, we, we would sit there for hours and hours in a cold studio under bright lights, you know, and some of these deals, and there's a lot of time in between deals where you're waiting to reset and stuff like that. So I would just try and stay caffeinated. And so by the end of the day, I was so wired on like chocolate covered espresso beans and shit. I was just kind of a monster. You know, one of the things that was funny, I think was that I think Barbara was the most ruthless. And Barbara doesn't like me in real life either. Barbara loves to fuck with people. And so when we're all sitting there in our outfits, they will do these things called hero shots where the camera pans in and pans out on each person. So that they have a bunch of film to run later, you know, when you, they go to commercial break and they like pull back, you know, or come in dramatically or like, like when we come back, you know, and you know, like Barbara has got an offer on the table for whatever. And Kevin's, you know, so they need all this kind of footage to just have so they can splice in. So at the beginning of, of a shooting day, they'll tape like 20 minutes of that. And our job is just to sit there, you know, like Damon will do his fingers cross pose or his arms or whatever, you know, like everyone does their move, right? To look like very businessy and important. And so, but they'll be like, all right, isolating on Lori now, you know, and so cameras will be coming in and out on Lori. And when they do that, Barbara would just love to fuck with people. She would just say the most offensive and hilarious shit to try and make them crack up and lose character. And I'm telling you, there are some like access Hollywood level tapes of Barbara during those times. And I'm like, there are 50 people here who all have, you know, earphones in listening to you on this microphone. And she would just say the most intense shit to try and get people to crack character during that time. But so yeah, if anyone ever is looking for political dirt on Barbara, there's definitely tapes. Although they belong to the same guy who wouldn't release the, the Donald Trump tapes, Mark Burnett. So Last one, and I'll give you a chance to plug one of your own companies here, if you so choose. If we listen back to this episode a few years down the line and check on your prediction here, what is the climate tech company few people know about today that is about to be a huge part of our lives? Well, look, I'm going to say a couple because there's a couple things in climate that aren't particularly sexy, but that we have to have. So one of them is lithium mining, like lithium mining is currently a disaster. So first of all, we need lithium for batteries, right? But the way lithium in mi is mined uses an insane amount of water. It's very dirty. It's actually not great for the environment. And so the result is that it's kind of like the dirty underbelly of, of the environment is like, you need, you know, you need massive batteries for Tesla to succeed and Tesla succeeding is a good thing for humanity. And you need these massive batteries for electric airplanes that displace carbon-based fuels. But mining lithium has traditionally been really nasty. And so we have a company called Lilac, which mines lithium quite literally with 99% less water and 5,000 times faster than a traditional lithium mine with none of that environmental damage. 
I mean, it's insane really. And so, you know, I don't think that's the kind of thing that like any teenagers are going to rush out and tell their parents like, Hey, we got to buy, you know, lilacs lithium or anything like that, but it's massive. And that's the scale at which we're trying to work. Like I said, we have multiple companies that are achieving fusion, you know, which is nuclear power without the radiation that for decades, people have said was like literally physically impossible would violate the laws of nature, but those three companies are succeeding. And so, and I love it. I mean, I still see haters on the internet all the time or like, you know, fusion will never happen. I'm like, okay, you can fucking say that. But you know, ultimately when they do succeed, there'll be multi-trillion dollar market caps, you know, but I mean, we've got all kinds of cool shit. Like I think I'll say more of the protein you eat is going to come from flies that ate trash. We grow flies that eat trash from restaurants and then we feed them to fish and pigs and chicken. And ultimately you'll just be eating it directly and you won't really know. Like I said, we are going to have beef coming out of vats. You're going to have cheese that tastes as good as cheese, but it never touched a cow or it was cultured from actual dairy cells, but you know, never had eyes or hooves or anything like that. We're going to have soil that's enhanced using fungus instead of nitrogen based fertilizers. We're just going to have all kinds of stuff. We're going to turn every truck driver in the country through this company called Remora into a carbon sequester. We're going to plant trees with drones. That's a huge company. It's just, it's kind of amazing everything that's happening here. And so, you know, we just announced uh, an investment in a company that's making pleasure boats that are electric, just like Tesla makes the fastest cars out there. These boats are absurdly fast but make no noise. They're electric. They're, you know, they charge up in a couple hours. There's fewer moving parts, so they're easier to maintain. That's just going to keep happening. But then there's all this unsexy stuff like AI for your air conditioner and, you know, smart venting in your house and stuff like that. So a lot of it is just, is fucking crazy right now. It's some stealth stuff I can't talk about, but I am convinced that we will have multiple multi-trillion dollar market cap companies in our portfolio, a couple of which I can't even talk about what they're up to right now, but they're doing pretty cool shit. So I think what's funny is that rather than place a particular bet on a particular company, there's still a lot of naysayers who think that climate's not where it's at. And so I love it. Among those who did invest, my favorite investors are the ones who actually don't give a shit about the climate and invested just because they're chasing returns and they do see it. I mean, we've got big investment banks that truly don't care. I mean, they fund palm oil deals. Like they just don't care about the planetary externalities, but they love this shit because they know this is where the biggest markets are. You know, going back to your question earlier about the slides in your pitch deck, like everyone puts that total addressable market slide, which is usually bullshit, but the total addressable markets for what we're building are like everyone who eats, everyone who uses energy, everyone who wants to move around the planet at all, everyone who uses buildings or houses, like total addressable markets are fucking huge. And so I'm super bullish about what we're doing. You know, I've written about this. I encourage other people to do it. It's the only time in my life I've actively encouraged competition. I think, you know, we weren't able to accept all the billions of dollars that wanted to invest in our funds. And so there's a lot of unmet demand for investing in climate projects. And this is where the markets are. And so I encourage anyone listening to go not only get involved with these companies, but maybe start your own investment fund doing it. I'd like to thank our guest today. Chris Saka has not taken a rake from today's shows. He has been here on his own goodwill and good nature. He is the co-founder and managing partner of Lower Carbon Capital, and he has been kind to join us. Chris, this was great. Thank you for being here on In Conversation with Shopify Plus. 
Thank you. By the way, I just have to say, like, I'm a Shopify shareholder. Luckily, I'm a big fan of Toby's. I, I remember hanging out with him in a hotel room in like Arizona, I don't know, countless years ago, some random event where we were hanging out and speaking. But I love what Shopify does. And I'm not being paid to say this, but I just love a company that's kicked so much ass, but has such incredible values and is not afraid to put their money where their mouth is on things they believe in the positive impact on the planet. And so I guess I just want to say that it should have come up more naturally in the in the conversation. But when you talk about business leaders who are also good leaders, Toby is literally at the top of the list for me. All right. Thanks to Chris Saka. And thank you again for listening. That is a wrap on season two of In Conversation with Shopify Plus. We have been grateful to have you on board with us. We will be back with you soon with new episodes, but please check out our archives. They are loaded. We have Danny Reese, the president and CEO of Canada Goose, Steve Madden, the man himself, Seema Bansal, the co-founder of Venus A. Fleur. Our feed is filled with the very best and brightest, and they have plenty of things to say. To find more of our interviews with Emma Greed, the co-founder and CEO of Good American, Seth Godin, the famous marketer and best-selling author, or Roth Barton, the co-founder of Rothy's, visit us online at inconversation.shopifyplus.com. <laughs>